Everybody else, 2 Peter chapter 3. So we've been dealing with the false teachers that had arisen in the first century. Um, Peter wrote this probably around AD 65. His first letter to them was helping these believers deal with the persecution they were facing. So in between that time of the persecution under Nero, um, some false teaching in regard, particularly among the second coming, and so that's what chapter 3 is all about. Peter's writing to these believers to address the great salvation. That's all chapter 1. Chapter 2 is all about the characteristics and um, perspective on false teachers. And then chapter 3 is to address um, what they were saying in regard to the second coming, but also to remind them of the importance of uh, the second coming's truth and what it should do uh, to our faith. And so so I want us to to read uh, 1 through 10, and then verse 10 is going to serve as a springboard for us, and we're going to spend uh, just about all of our time today in Matthew chapter 24, looking at what Jesus had to say about the approaching end days, because verse 10 of chapter 3 uh, in 2 Peter is all about that. So let's look in verse 1, so we can kind of see the flow of what Peter has been addressing and what we've looked at over the last couple of weeks. 2 Peter 3, verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, and both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. It doesn't say equal to, but as... In a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord, that's His second coming, will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So Peter is sharing with us here a variety of reasons why the scoffers were doubting the second coming. He's also addressing why you and I should embrace this truth of the second coming. And the first one is simply this, just so that I can summarize things before we get to verse 10. He says this, they are ignoring the prophecies and the teaching of the Old Testament, but also the teaching of the apostles who got their teaching from Jesus himself. And so those that were doubting the second coming of Jesus, they were doing so because they were ignoring Scripture. Now for you and I, we know about the second coming and embrace it, and it quickens our heart and excites us because we know that God all along has said Jesus was not only going to come the first time and rescue us and become the sacrifice and the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, that word that means the satisfactory sacrifice that met the demands that the Father had. And so Jesus became that for us. So not only was He coming the first time, but He was going to come again, and so they were ignoring that. The scoffers, Peter said, because they ignore God, they only have one choice in the way that they teach and the way they live their lives. If you ignore God, then you follow your own self. And so they follow and embrace their own sinful desires, and that is the basis for their teaching. And as a matter of fact, All false teaching has that. You ignore God's truth. All that you have left is yourself and a sinful nature and a depraved mind. And so all that you have flowing out of that is teaching that is grounded in sinful desires. The third thing that he addresses in verse 4 is they were, the false teachers, denying the supernatural. Now, we live in a day and time. If you're a student in a public school system or a university student, you know this to be true. Our culture is a big denier of the supernatural. And so in the first century, they were saying this, he's not coming back. Ever since the fathers fell asleep, 
All things are continuing, Peter says, as they have been since the beginning of creation. So there's never been an intervention by God in the world in a supernatural way, and so things are just going to continue. Y'all have been saying Jesus is coming back. Where is he? He's not coming back. It had only been 30 years or so since he had ascended, but this had become an attack upon the, the first century church. Well, Peter says, those that were saying God has never intervened in the world and done something supernatural were ignoring two primary things where God had intervened in the world, and the first one was creation. There were things that existed that just moments before didn't exist, and God spoke, and all of a sudden, boom, they exist, and God created all of those things out of nothing. And so Peter says, those who say God has not intervened should just look at creation. They existed long ago. And not only that, he did that by his word, but then he also, in Noah's generation, used water as well another time when he spoke, and he intervened in Noah's generation that was an apostate generation that had rejected the truth and the teaching of God, that had a history of knowing God, and they had walked away from all of that revelation, and they were living on their own. And so Noah, for 120 years, built an ark, and as he built the ark, he also preached. And nobody believed but Noah's family, his sons, and their wives, and only eight people were saved in the ark. And so Peter makes the argument They say the world's just continued on. Peter says, not true. I've got two examples for you. One, the creation, and two, uh, the flood. Fourthly, they ignore, the false teachers, the sovereign power of God's word. God spoke, and the world came into existence. God spoke, and the flood came. God will speak in the future, and Jesus will return. Jesus will deal with his enemies by speaking. We'll see that at the very end today. And so this same word that created the world, that brought the flood, is also going to bring judgment upon the world. And so Peter says, this is the reality of things. And then he closed, and we finished this up last week, is that God has this unbelievable eternal patience, that God is eternal. He doesn't, he doesn't do things according to our time frame and our schedules. And so God, because he's not confined to time, um, he's not delaying anything at all. He's actually got things running exactly the way he wants them to run. We may think, God, come on, come on, come on. Just as a kid, we talked about last week, you know, 30 minutes into an eight-hour trip, what are the kids asking? Are we there yet? No, we're not there yet. And so we believers are asking, God, are we there yet? Are you, are you coming back? And God's just not worried about that because his time frame is a redemption time frame. It's all about salvation, and this great patience of God is being delayed because He has this great for people to kingdom. And so you and I are in this room this morning. If you know Him today, you and I know Him because of the great patience of Jesus. There has not been a return, and so because of that, we have the opportunity to enter into a relationship with Him in the kingdom. And so based on 2 Peter 3.10, that Jesus will come like a thief in the night. I want to use that before we talk about his coming. What does it look like leading up to the thief in the night coming? And before God destroys this world and the universe is gone, and we, though, and we who know him will live with him forever in a new heaven and a new earth. And so one day, last week of Jesus' life, intense week, Battles with the religious leaders, lots of teaching. There's some amazing things that happened during that week. They were walking out of the temple, and the apostles saw the temple that was there, that was Herod's temple, and it was an amazing um, piece of architecture. And they saw this, and they had a question for Jesus, and they posed a question for him about the end times. When are the last days? And they had an expectation in their life that it was going to happen then. They believed, based on the Old Testament writing, that when Messiah came, he would restore Israel to its prominence. He would free them from their oppressors. And Jesus is going to answer their question, and I think it blows their mind. If you and I would have been a part of that group back then, um, it would have been a moment um, as, uh, as he did that, as he uh, communicated with them what was happening and taking place. All of us, in some ways, have a desire to know the future. Now, most of the world wants to know the future for selfish reasons, you know, to give me a good business contact or I could invest in the right perfect stock so that I could, you know. And you and I, as believers, we want to know about the future so that it will give us assurance and confidence today to be able to have endurance to walk faithfully with Him until the very end. In our world, 
doesn't want to see Jesus again. And regardless of what they want and what they say and what they believe and what they write and what they teach and what they proclaim in the school system, universities, blogs, whatever the case is, the world is going to see him again. And it will not be like Bethlehem. He will come and everybody on the face of the earth will see exactly who he is in this second coming. So what I'd like to do now is from verse 10, I want you to go to Matthew chapter 24. And we're going to spend the majority of our time in Matthew chapter 24. And we'll see the question that they ask and what is happening and taking place. Let's look at 24, 1, and 2. So again, this is the last week of Jesus' life. He is literally, in the scheme of things, hours away from being on the cross. So Matthew 24, 1. So Jesus left the temple and was going away. And when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, Jesus answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And the temple in Jerusalem at that time was amazing. They had had, this was the third temple. This is called Herod's temple. We know of Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple was destroyed Then they went into the Babylonian captivity and the Persian captivity. They came back. They began under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah, the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple and worship and all of this. Well, that temple was eventually destroyed as well. And this is the third temple that that Herod built. Now, Herod was not a Jew. He was the king at that time. But Herod was an Idumean. Um, But he built this temple not to the glory of God, but for the glory of who? Of Herod. He wanted to point to himself but it was the lifeblood of the nation. There were still sacrifices and things going on. It was magnificent in beauty. Its architecture, its location in the ancient city was pretty amazing. The surrounding structures around it, there was almost there was this huge retaining wall that was made of these great, grand, huge, big stones, 40 foot long, 12 foot by 12 foot, um, weighed, weighing several tons, just amazing. If you ever traveled in parts of the world where you've seen these ancient structures and you wonder how did people way back when without cranes and all of this make this stuff, how did they carry it places, and then how did they stand it up, and, and the temple was just incredible. As a matter of fact, uh, um, the, uh, um, the Babylonian Talmud said this, you can find these words written in there about Herod's temple, it says this, he that never saw the temple of Herod never saw a fine building. And it just said it was one of the most magnificent pieces of architecture at that particular point in time. In my research this week, as I said a while ago, there were um, some of the stones that were connected with it, 40 feet by 12 by 12, weighing hundreds of tons. Um, it just, just an amazing, amazing place. The only thing that's left of Herod's temple is what we know today as the Wailing Wall. It's all that's left. And I'll talk a little bit more about that here in just a moment. But as the disciples and Jesus were making their way beside the temple, the apostles and disciples look up and they say to Jesus, man, isn't this an incredible thing? And Jesus says, well, it's not going to stand. It's going to be toppled. And all these stones that are stacked on one another, not a one of them are going to be connected in the future. And it must have blown their mind in that moment, thinking this magnificent thing, the lifeblood of our nation, it's not going to be there. And they're thinking to themselves, how can this be? How in the world can this be? And here's the reality. God had come, Christ had come, and He was changing everything. It was no longer going to be about God's presence in a temple, and it's now going to be about God's presence where? In us. We were going to become the temple. And God was moving from a building in this worship of Him to now this aspect of that we would come to faith in Him, He would redeem us, and we would become the temple of God. And so Jesus tells them, listen, this great shift is coming. It's not going to be about this. It's going to be, it's going to be about in your heart. And in August the 29th, A.D. 70, Titus Vespasian and his Roman army came into Jerusalem and they were fighting and a big battle took place. The Jews were living inside the city, in the, inside the walled city. They were, had lots of infighting with each other and, and they weren't in unison together. They weren't ready to, to fight the Romans that had come in. And after a number of weeks and battles, eventually Titus and his army broke down the walls, they came into Jerusalem, and he had given some instructions to not destroy 
the temple, but you know how people are. Sometimes they don't listen to their generals and stuff, and they began to destroy the temple. One guy, soldier, went in to the Holy of Holies, and he threw a torch in there. It started a fire. Everything in the colonnades and things of that nature just began to burn. And eventually what happened was the Jews had, had gone in there, and some of them were hiding. As estimated, about 6,000 of them were murdered in the temple that day. 6,000 of them hiding. They had hid gold in there. The fire was so hot that the gold melted and began to run down everything around there and the walls of the temple, and the gold got into the cracks of all of that. And so after everything kind of settled down and the gold um, was in the cracks, what do you think those Roman soldiers wanted? They wanted the gold. So you know what they did? They started chipping away the gold, and not one single stone as they sought to get the gold was left of Herod's temple. The only thing that was left was what we know today as the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. We know now in Jerusalem there is a mosque that sits there. Um, and there is much debate about the location, where was exactly the ancient temple? Could it actually have been someplace else? Because the Jews have been wanting to rebuild the temple since a, August the 29th, AD 70, when it was um, destroyed. And so Jesus, that day, just kind of blows their mind and says, okay, you think this is grand? Well, it's going to be gone, and it has been gone. And guess what? It's 2019, and it's still gone. 2,000 years later almost, it is gone, and it's not been rebuilt. Um, There is, and we'll talk about this later today, there will be a temple rebuilt in the future where they will begin worshiping again. Sacrifices will happen again in the last days, Um, but they want to know about this grand temple temple and Jesus says well it's not going to be there well this blows their mind they walk across the Kidron Valley they get across look with me in Mark and Matthew 24 3 now so they get across on the Mount of Olives right across outside Jerusalem they're looking back they can see the walls around Jerusalem they can see the temple because it sits on this high point of the city uh, let me just read what M- Mark wrote about this same sequence this is Mark 13 3 and as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple Peter, James, John, and Andrew came to him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke all write about this same conversation, about their fascination with the temple. And Jesus says, okay, it's not going to last. We know that that James and John and Peter and Andrew came and said, okay, you've got to give us some more information about this. We want to know what is the sign about all this stuff that's going to happen. And so Jesus begins to unfold those things. Now, it's interesting here when they ask this question, when they say, tell us when all these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. This phrase in the Greek is interesting. It literally means this. What will be the sign of your presence? It's a Greek word called parousia. And so this word literally means this. The Greeks used to use it for a king that came into a city, and the king came and the king stayed. The king didn't go away. And so when they ask this question, they are basically saying this. We believe you are the Messiah. You have come. Your presence is here. But what's going to be the sign since you're here that you're going to restore Israel right now to its prominence? The reason we believe that they were thinking this, because you come to Acts 1, verse 8, 40 days later after the resurrection, and they are there, and they come to Jesus again, and they say, hey, are you going to restore Israel right now? And Jesus says, no, but here's what you're going to do. I want you to take the gospel to the nations so that they can know about this. And so Jesus answers their question. He is the God who answers our questions, the deep questions that we have, but they have this great question. So let's now look at what are the signs? What, what did Jesus tell them that day? And so I want us to walk through Matthew 24. I want us to see some of these signs um, so that we can kind of see. And the first one I want to talk about is uh, I'm going to use the word increasing quite a bit. Um, everything's connected with that, the increasing intensity of the birth pains. And let's start in verse 4. Let's read through verse 8, and let's talk about those for a moment. The signs of his coming, the first one, the increasing intensity of the birth pains. Verse 4, Matthew 24. And Jesus answered them. This is how he answered their question. See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, 
and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So let me give you three things that Jesus shares there, and then he gives some response to this. Now, I believe these things have been happening for a long time. I think some of these things began at the time Jesus said these words, and I believe that here we are about 2,000 years later since Jesus said them, and I think the increasing of these is there, and I think the evidence um, is there. And the first one is simply this, is there will, as we approach the end times and the last days, there will be the increasing amount of counterfeit Jesus and counterfeit religions that, that sound Christian but are not. In the last 100 and 200 years, in our nation particularly, there has been the birth of um, cults that sound Christian, that sound, use some of the same language that we have from Mormonism to Christian scientists uh, to Jehovah's Witnesses. And so the danger about them is they use some of the same language uh, that we have. But Jesus is saying, as the second coming nears, here's what you need to know. There will continue to be people who will be counterfeit Jesuses. And they will continue to teach things. They will come along and they will say, I am Jesus, I'm the Messiah, follow me. In our lifetime, those of us who are a little older, not our kids, David Koresh outside of Waco, you know, about 30 miles outside of Waco, was one of those who claimed that he was Christ in the flesh and was a Messiah. There have been those throughout the world's history. There will continue to be those. And so Jesus says, I want you to know this, that as you approach my second coming in the last days, this will increase in a dramatic way. Secondly, you will hear rumors of war, or there will be literally wars, and you will have rumors of war. We know in the 20th century there were two huge wars. Early part of the first cent- or 20th century uh, in World War I, and then in the middle part of, of, the, of the 20th century, World War II. There have been multiple other war- wars on other continents and things of that nature, and this is continuing. We have seen it in our, in, in our nation this week with Iran, have we not? So there's these rumors, these, these conflicts, and these, th- these things are going to continue, and they are going to increase. And so Jesus says, to answer to their question, what's going to be the sign? Jesus says, okay, here's the deal. One, there's going to be false claims about me coming. Don't believe them. Secondly, there's going to be literal wars. There are going to be huge wars. You're going to hear rumors of it, and there's going to be increasing nature of that. And the third one, he says there will be famines and there will be earthquakes. If you have done any study in this area as well, or just I think, you know, we live in a technological age, and we just see things a whole lot more. But um, the increasing amount of earthquakes and natural disasters around the world is unlike any time in the history of the world. And so we see the increasing amount of those. Now with famines and other things, natural disasters like that, God usually gets the blame for those things, that it's God's fault. If he was a good God, then he would have stepped in and he would have done something about that. I hope for us as believers that we would get to the place that we understand that we don't understand everything. That God allows certain things to happen that blows our mind. They're really hard things to wrestle with and try and reconcile with his nature. But we know this, that the scripture has revealed that he's absolutely good. He is absolutely sovereign. So if he allows something, it is for an ultimate purpose of his, and we just have to trust with that. And so I want to say this statement one more time before we move on. I hope you and I as believers get to the place where the tension of some of those things that's just there, I mean, look at the world. Does it not break your heart looking at our world at times? Do we want God to intervene in some of those things? Absolutely we do. Sometimes God doesn't intervene, and these things continue to happen. But we have to get to a place where we trust that God is sovereign, He's absolutely good, and that God is accomplishing His purpose even in the midst of of those things. And so Jesus says, here's how you respond to the increasing amount of birth pains. One is this, don't be led astray by talk. Don't. Don't be led astray by it. So he says, don't be led astray by it. So he answered them, see that no one leads you astray. So how do, how do, we, how do we know to not be led astray? Well, we know this. We got to know this so that when people make claims about things, we know this, not true. It doesn't line up with the Scripture. And then secondly, faith's response is, we, we don't get led astray by man. We're trusting what God's Word is, is saying. 
Secondly, we're not alarmed with the increasing amount of these things. And so Jesus says, see that you're not alarmed with this. Don't get alarmed about all this stuff. And thirdly, he says this. He says in the last part of verse 6, he says, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. And he's saying this, don't fear embracing what is going to come. These things are going to come, and so just be ready. And he says in verse 6, but the end is not yet. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. And so his heart is to say, do not be deceived. But look at the signs of the times, look at what's going on, and don't be tricked in regard to all of this. And so, so the first thing Jesus does to answer the question is, there's going to be birth pains. They're going to fall in three areas. Counterfeit claims about Christ, wars and rumors of war, they will increase, and famines and earthquakes are going to increase. Look at verse 9. Secondly, there's going to be an increasing amount of persecution and martyrdom of true believers. So Matthew 24, 9 says, And then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now, I want you to notice, W4, we call us to always look, third W word, look at every single word of every verse. Notice there, they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by how many nations? How many? All. There is coming a day in the future where Christianity, you think it's hated now, Christianity will be so hated, there will not be, you will not be able to find a nation, a people, group, a tribe on planet earth that will have anything good to say about Christianity. Christians will be hunted down for slaughter and killed. And so Jesus says, listen, don't be surprised about this. I'm just telling you what's coming, that as my second coming approaches, there will be an increasing amount of persecution and martyrdom. And this is not anything that is unusual. For the last 2,000 years, the history of the church reveals this reality. It began with Stephen and James in the book of Acts. It continued with the apostles. All of the apostles, we believe, were martyred except for John. But John suffered persecution. He was on the Isle of Patmos. He suffered much persecution. In the first and second centuries, Christians were fed to the lions. They were sewn up in animal skins and allowed wild beasts to attack them in there. They were killed by Roman gladiators, and Nero used Christians as human candles, putting wax on them to light up his elaborate gardens in the city of Rome. We see in the, you come all the way to the Reformation, and the height of the Reformation, particularly in England and some other places, there were multiple thousands and thousands of Christians who were burned at the stake. They were drowned forcibly in water. They were tortured. They were thrown in prison because they loved Jesus more than their very lives. In the 20th century, we're in the 21st, in case you don't remember, in the 20th century alone was the most amount of martyrs and killings of Christians in the whole history of the church. Um, just an intense amount. It was believed when Mao came to power in China that immediately about 3 million Christians in China were murdered. It is estimated that over 12 million Christians when Russia came to power and took over the communist bloc of people that uh, those nations, 12 million Christians were killed in Russia and those Soviet-controlled um, countries of Eastern Europe throughout the Cold War. Since the birth of the church, no generation, our generation, has seen more persecution than is now. Force of the Martyrs, which is in your uh, worship folder today, estimated this, and they are really, really good at this. This is what they do. They have uh, done great research, and from the years 2000 to 2010, it is estimated that one million people in that decade worldwide that were believers were martyred. 100,000 a year. It is the largest single decade of slaughter of Christians in the history of the church. And so Jesus is saying here, listen, I just want to tell you, I'm the treasure of life, and if you'll treasure me, I will be with you until the end of the age. I'll be with you um, until you die, and if, even if it costs you your life, I'm going to be with you, and I will bring you into my presence. You will be, but he's saying this, that as we approach the end times, there will be a increasing amount of persecution and martyrdom. That will lead to what we see in verses 10 through 13. Look with me there. There will be an increase in lawlessness and a lack of love that will permeate the world. I'm going to depress you with one more point and then I'm going to share something positive with you, okay? Matthew 24, 10. 
And then many will fall away and betray one another. And this is on the heels of this great persecution. And they will hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so this great persecution of Christians as we approach the last days and His second coming, all of this will lead to a great falling away from the faith because of the increase of the persecution and the martyrdom. And this result will bring about a great hatred of Christianity and of mankind, not just toward Christians, but toward one another. And I believe it makes perfect sense to me that if you attack those who love the world best, which are believers, because we, we love the world. I hope you love the world. Not the world system, but I hope you love the people of the world who are lost and separated from God, longing for them to come into a relationship with God. But you attack them, you kill them, you remove them. And I, I believe I, I'm a pre-trib rapture person. And if the, you get to the seven-year period of the Great Tribulation, and if the church is taken out, and then new believers come, and they are attempted to be killed, and, and you've got this great thing. You're, here's what you naturally have. You have nobody who's loving the world with a biblical love, and so man's going to turn against one another. There's not this example of passionate love and care for one another. Christian hospitals will be gone. Christian social ministry in, in feeding people, taking care of people, connected with sharing the gospel at the same time because they, both of those things need to take place, that will be, just be gone. And so what you have is you're going to have a world now that's going to be incredibly cold and loose morals and love of self will dominate the culture. Paul told us as well, this is what's coming. Listen to these words, very familiar to us. 2 Timothy 3, 1. But understand this, get this, comprehend this. So what the Greek means, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Can I just stop there for a moment? Look up here. Hear me. If you think the world's going to get better, I'm just here to tell you it is not. Now, can God awaken a nation and that nation has some better things and, and God awakens the church there and the church takes the gospel as a missionary movement to other places? Absolutely. But if you think the world wide is going to get better, it's not. So Paul tells us, Jesus tells us, and so he says there, there are coming times of difficulty. And here's why. There's going to be such an inward focus on we being the center of the world, human beings. This is what happens. Verse 2, Paul says in 2 Timothy. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness. Christian scientists, having the appearance, language, the appearance of this, but denying its power because it's not real. And he says here, avoid such people. Does that sound, I've said it many times, does that sound like any place you live? It does. I think these things are increasing, um, and I think we need to perk up. The place and time that you and I live in, do you sense a, a sense of entitlement in our culture? Do people feel entitled? Yeah. You know why? Because this increasing amount of selfishness dominates our culture. And when we are the center of the world, then everybody in our world has to do what? Has to lift us up and has to meet our need. You don't meet my need. Um, I'm mad at you. I'm angry at you. I'm going to say this. I'm going to do this. And there's a retaliation mindset, whether it's physical or it is emotional whatever the case is. And, and Jesus just says lawlessness in that time is going to increase and the love of many will grow cold. And I believe where morality is left up to each person, this is what you get. Now let me just share a few things here. The new morality of situational ethics that dominates our American culture today has led to an overthrow of absolutes in morality. And the result is now we live in a time where ethics are relatives wherever are relative and everybody just gets to decide what their truth is and eventually what you have is lawlessness and coldness and i believe that lawlessness and loose morals are the fruit of relativistic lives that's what you get if truth is relative 
then eventually down the line, as that increases, what you have is lawlessness, cold hearts, and loose morals. And lawlessness always leads to a hardened heart where indifference to life dominates people. That's why you have people who can literally see a picture of an aborted baby and see that those are human limbs. That's not a dog limb. That's not a cat limb. That is a baby's leg. And they can be so passionate and angry about, let's continue to slaughter children. That's self-pleasure, that's self-dominating thing, that's hardness of heart where there's a blindness and there's no thinking anymore, there's no rational thinking, and that all comes from this moralistic thing that is connected to relativity. Just, you have your truth, I've got my truth, we just all have our truth, and eventually, in the end times, everybody's got that until the Antichrist stands up and says, no, I'm putting a stop to that, you're going to worship me, I'm your truth. And this is where we're going. And so Jesus, in the midst of the, the lawlessness and lack of love, he says this in verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. You've got to hang in there, he says, Christians. It's going to get harder. It's going to get more difficult. And you've got to hang in there because you're coming to me. You're mine, and I'm going to bring you to me, and I'm going to bring you back, and, you, and I'm going to take care of you. So, so you trust in me. Look at verse 14. Here's the good news. And this is the one I get it real excited about. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Here's also what's going to happen as the last days approach. Now, we're getting to the point where I believe in the text here, Jesus is at the great tribulation period. And I believe that eventually there's going to come a time when the gospel gets to every tribe, every language, every people group, there are still roughly around, it's estimated, six, listen to me, 6,000 people groups, language groups, that have never heard the name of Jesus still. So Jesus says, when there's a testimony of me, that gets into that. And so he says, when that happens, look what he says, in this gospel of the kingdom, it will be, it's going to be accomplished. It will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Now look at that phrase, as a testimony to all nations. Are all nations going to believe? No, they're not. But all nations eventually will have a testimony about Jesus. And then Jesus says, and then the end will come. Now, let me start a moment. And just say this, how is that going to be accomplished? Because if there's some places in the world today, if you and I were to get on a plane and we were to fly there today and drive out to a group of people, they would immediately, as soon as we got out of the car, what would they do to us? They would kill us. So how, how, do you, how is eventually, how are you going to get the gospel to every language group where there's such hostility? Well, I believe the book of Revelation tells us. And I think it's in Revelation 7 and it's in Revelation 14. There are 144,000 male Jews who are virgins, Revelation 14 tells us. Revelation 7 tells us that they will be sealed with the seal of God. And I believe that they become the great missionaries of the great tribulation period. And they are sealed with God's seal and they're able to go to every nation. They're able to go to all these tribes and they are able to go in there because you get to Revelation chapter 14. And if you'll read Revelation 7 through 13, it's a pretty traumatic world. And you get to Revelation 14, guess who's still alive? Every one of them, the 144,000. And I think they are the ones who ultimately complete getting the testimony in places where it's hard for us to get the gospel to. I think eventually they do. So eventually, I think in the Great Tribulation, the gospel reaches everyone. But in our time, we take the gospel. Now we, we are doing that because we want people to know But I think that they finished that. And let me just say this before we move on to the next point. Listen to me, church. Why do we go to the DR, Ukraine, Nepal, other places that we have gone? Sierra Leone. Because Jesus told us that missions is global. It's not just local. We want all nations. The end is not going to come until there is a testimony in every place. And so that's why some people are called and they go and live in difficult places. I have a relative that's living in a difficult place. 
trying to get the gospel to a place where the gospel is not established. And so for us, we participate locally, we participate nationally, and we participate globally because global missions is the heartbeat of God. God wants all people to hear about Jesus. They're not all going to believe but we have to have this global mindset about missions. And Jesus says, I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. Until this world is not be with you, and when this world isn't anymore, I'm going to be with you believers. I'm going to be with you. So you take the gospel with this missional mindset. Nextly, we got it. Nextly, is that even a word? Anyway, next, here we go. Um, let me talk about verses 15 through 22. Because we're going to see this in our lifetime. I think we're seeing it in our lifetime. There's going to continue to be an indescribable persecution of Israel. And you see it in verses 15 through 22. And again, I want to remind you, these are Jesus' words. Let's read it. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet of Daniel, standing in the holy place, and Matthew puts in parentheses, let the reader understand something. So he's pointing something to understand it. Verse 16. When you see the abomination of desolation, 16 says, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down and take what is in his house. Don't go grab your wallet. Verse 18, And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Let me give you a brief future lesson. Israel has been hated for all of its existence, starting in Egypt. We know in Germany, World War II, with the Holocaust there, throughout its history, it has been that way. The temple was destroyed on August the 29th, AD 70. It's never been rebuilt. Jewish people have been scattered. The ten tribes under the Assyrians, when they came in, took the ten tribes. They've scattered them. God knows where the descendants of those ten tribes are, and he's going to find them again. You'll have the 144,000. But let me just say this. It's, I think it's really important. There will continue to be an intense persecution of the nation of Israel. And as we continue toward the future, eventually there will be such chaos in the world that there will be a world leader that rises up, and he's called the Antichrist. And he will make a pact, a treaty, whatever you want to call it, with Israel, and he will tell them, he will become the world leader, and he will tell them, I will protect you. And Israel will seek protection from him. And for the first three and a half years, he will protect Israel. And, and things will be going well. During those three and a half years, there will be nations who hate Israel and hate that the, the world leader has provided protection for them. And there will be battles and there will be things and there will be kind of a time of peace, but the, they will hate it. But at the middle part of that seven-year period, the Antichrist will reveal his true colors. And Daniel writes about it. Daniel writes about the abomination of desolation, and it has two perspectives. There's an ancient abomination of desolation that took place in the intertestamental period that after Malachi wrote, there was a 400 years of silence. God was silent. There was no writing. There was no prophets until John the Baptist came upon the scene, and then Jesus' ministry started. There's a book called Maccabees. I've read it. It's not a a book of the canon, it's not in the Bible, but it's a pretty fascinating read if you've ever read it. It's historical. A guy named Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Greek leader, he came into Jerusalem and hated the Jews. And this was when Greek was in power and eventually their power was waning and Rome was going to come over and take over, take over the power that was there. But he went into the temple one day and he took a pig in the Holy of Holies and slaughtered its blood everywhere. As you know anything about Jewish law, not a good thing. Then he took some of that pork and forced it down the priest's mouths and forced them to eat it. We also know this, that he set up a God in the Holy of Holies. It doesn't say who it is, but most likely he set up Zeus in the Holy of Holies. 
It's called the abomination of desolation that Daniel wrote about. It was not only about that, but it also was about the future. That there's coming a day with the Antichrist is that the Antichrist, there will be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and there will be sacrifices being made in it again. And about that halfway period, the Antichrist will reveal his true colors. He will declare and the scripture says that he will step into the temple and he will, he will declare himself in the Holy of Holies in the newly constructed temple and he will say, I am God, world, you have to worship me. And can you imagine the media in the future, however long that is, can you imagine the instantaneous moment that you're watching this live wherever you are? If you can't afford a smartwatch now, I think probably in the future, every one of us will have it. There will not be a place on the planet that we will not be able to watch things. And he will declare himself that day and he will turn against Israel. And so when Jesus, watch this, what Jesus does here. He's, for three and a half years, he's protected them and now he turns against them. And Jesus says, when that day happens, don't go get your coat. Flee to the mountains. Now when you look in the book of Revelation... The Jews flee, and you also look in, Revel- in Matthew chapter 25, because all of that's the context about the, s- the second coming and the great tib- tribulation period. The Jews will flee from Jerusalem, and they will go to the mountains. And back in the day when, if you all remember that, years ago, when we walked through Revelation in here, we got to this particular point in time, that it's likely believed that the Jews will flee to Jordan to a place called Petra. If you don't know where Petra is, you remember Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and where they come through there and, you know, they've got all that cool stuff. There's a valley there that it's estimated that is big enough in the protection there that they, the Jews will flee there and they will be protected. And there will be nations and people and Christians, mainly Christians, who will, who will feed and clothe. Uh, by the way, Matthew 25, we've, we've heard this for most of our lives and it's kind of this way with Christianity. We sometimes take things out of context because it meets a, a ministry philosophy we have. When you come to Matthew 25 and it talks about uh, when Jesus talks about I was imprisoned and you clothed me, um, I was hungry and you fed me, that is in the context of the second coming. Likely that is all about Christians taking care of the Jews in the valley there in Petra during the great tribulation period, giving them a cup of cold water, clothing them because, again, if you're working up on your roof and you don't have clothes on and, and the Antichrist stands up and says, kill every Christian, kill every Jew, and you, you don't have time to get dressed, you've got to flee. And so there's clothing that children need. Um, there's all of that kind of stuff. And it's believed, Matthew 25 is about, I believe that is, is about us, of, of the taking care of that. And so there's just going to be this increasing indescribable persecution of Israel. Paul said it like this, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So Jesus says, this is coming. This is coming. Now look at verse 23 through 28. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ. So we're in the great tribulation period. There's been this fleeing of the Jews out of Jerusalem and Israel. They're in hiding. If anyone says to you, look, there's Christ. He's come back. There he is. Do not believe it, Jesus said. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, there he is in the wilderness. Do not go out. And if they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. And here's why. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. And wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So let me ask a question because we have to deal with it as we wind this down today. So are these false Christs different than the false Christs in the first part of chapter 24? And I think they are. Think about this for a moment. You're a Christian. You've come to faith in the great tribulation. You're a Jew. You've come to faith in Christ. The Antichrist has declared you a death warrant on you. You have fled. What's the easiest way to capture people to draw them out of their hiding? 
to say this. Hey, Jesus is out there in the desert. And these false Christs will arise in the great tribulation period and they will be under demonic power and they will perform supernatural miracles because of the, the influence of Satan and what he's doing. And people will, Jesus is saying, if you think I'm out in the desert, I'm just here to tell you I'm not out in the desert. Don't go out there. Don't go out there because I'm not coming like that again. Everybody's going to know when I come back this second time. Nobody really knew when I came the first time. When I come back the second time, I'm not coming to the desert. I'm not coming to some room somewhere in some temple or some place. I'm not doing that. I'm going to come back, and I'm going to come back in a time of darkness, and it's going to be lightning. When you see lightning at nighttime, that's how I'm going to come back, and it's going to be worldwide lightning. Everybody's going to see. Everybody knows that I'm going to come back. And so in the very last great part of this great tribulation period there are going to be people all over the world say oh Jesus is over there go out and see him and I think one of the main reasons for all this false demonic stuff about Christ in the great tribulation is to draw out believers so that they can be killed um, by, the, by the antichrist and I think that is the ultimate aim so what is a world it's natural to understand this what's a world that's in chaos want and wants a messiah so you think about four years into the Great Tribulation or, you know, six months into the second part of those three and a half years. You've got stars falling out of the heaven. You've got wars all over the place. You've got hunger and famine, slaughter, massacre. The oceans and seas have turned to blood. Demons have been unleashed upon the world. Talks about that in, in Revelation. There's a new holocaust that has come upon the Jews. There are plagues. There are earthquakes. There are famines. What is the world looking for at that moment? It's looking for a Savior. And so it's natural for Satan to think, okay, I'm going to capitalize on this. How about this false Christ out here in this desert? Come out here. Jesus has come back, and he's your Savior. You can, you can meet him here. You can meet him in this temple in India. You can, you can see, you can go find him here, and there will be these great miracles happening and taking place in this great deception. And look at the words of Jesus do not go out there. Do not believe it. I've told you beforehand. And a second time he says, do not believe it. Now look at 29, the last part here. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now look, just look at those phrases. Listen, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. What happens in those moments? You know what's upholding the world right now? Hebrews 1.3 tells us. What is it? The word of his what? His power. He removes that and the world just shakes. The sun goes dark. The moon shines. Why? Because the sun reflects on it. There's no sun, so there's no moon. Can you imagine what the tides of the ocean will be doing? And the darkness that will envelop the world. So what is the sign, verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. What will be the sign of the Son of Man? Well, we know the wise men, what did they follow? A star, right? You know what the sign of the Son of Man is? It's not complicated. It's the Son of Man. How do you know that Jesus has come back? Well, the world will see Jesus when he comes back. So what's the sign that he's come back? Well, there will be no sun, there will be no moon, it's just darkness. And he will come, and he will come in the brightness of his glory, and the whole world will know that he's come back. And so that's why it says there, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. And wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And it, says, and it also says there that the, the nations will mourn when they see him 
coming. And so at the end of all of this, this will be the immediate return of Jesus. And so, so again, can you imagine being James and going, hey, can you explain to me about the temple? You know, that cool hair temple thing there? That there's not going to be one stone left on another. And Jesus says, well, let me tell you what's going to lead up to the end of times. And, and they're sitting there on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus gets to the point and says, there's going to come a time where there's not even, you won't even be able to find the sun. You can't even find the moon. But then here's what's going to happen. I'm going to come back. And I'm going to come back like lightning. And everybody see me come back. Like lightning from the east to the west on a dark night. And it will be shocking to everyone. Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will well on account of him. And John says, even so, even though that's coming, he says, amen. Amen. Well, I think we have to do this. Let's close. I want you to go to Revelation chapter 19 and let's see this. Verse 11, Revelation 19. And then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. In the armies of heaven, this is us, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, we're following him on white horses and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he will strike down the nations remember what peter said and he will and with this same word he will bring judgment and destruction of the ungodly so here it is this is the peter's talking about the same moment here and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of god the almighty and on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written king of kings and lord of lords And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, the riders, and all the flesh of men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting in the whor- on the horse. And all the birds, again, Peter's echoing it here, same words, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Well, he's going to come back. And he's going to have a sword and he's going to speak. And this is, again, another testimony of the power of God's word. He can just speak and he can slay his enemies. Now, let me just deal with this before we pray. Where do we fit in all this? Well, if you're not with the program, um, I think we're going to be with him. I think the church is raptured at the beginning. I'm a pre-tribulation person, and so um, I think the church is gone. I think, I think these armies that are coming with him are the Old Testament saints. I think this is the raptured church that is coming back with him before he sets up his millennial kingdom. And I think these are also the saints that were slayed who came to faith in Christ in the great tribulation period and lost their life. If you look in Revelation chapter 7, after the 144,000 are sealed, John looks in heaven and he sees all of these people gathered before the throne. And so he asked the angel, who are all those? Who are all those? And he said, and the angel says, those are the ones who've lost their lives because of the testimony of Jesus in the great tribulation period. So there's going to be people in the great tribulation period after the church is raptured who will come to faith in Jesus and they will be killed by the Antichrist. And they are before the throne of God. And so I think the Old Testament saints, I think the raptured church, and I think the martyred saints come back with Jesus riding on 
a horse. I can't wait. I'm going to ride on a horse. I'm not a good horse rider. I've fallen off. I don't know how many in my lifetime. I've probably ridden horses about 15 times in my life and fallen off about six of those. And so uh, I need to come to the blockhouse and learn how to get ready for the second coming. Okay, anyway. And we're going to come back with him riding on a horse. And listen to this, Colossians 3, 4. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We're coming back with him. And there'll be great sorrow on the earth. It says there that the tribes of the earth will mourn. Why? Because they're going to realize, oh gosh, I've been mocking the one who's real, he's true, and he's got a sword in his mouth. And they will be destroyed. And it's a sad moment at that time. So Peter says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So there's good news for us who are believers. We are His. And He will take care of us. And we are coming back with Him. Second coming is to give us great hope. But it's also to give us a great urgency that we want those that don't know Him to know Him. So I'm not trying to manipulate you. Maybe a little. The right kind of manipulation. On November the 10th, on a Sunday night, we're getting on a plane to go to a nation in Asia where the gospel isn't fully settled. And if you got time and you got the money, I want to encourage you, come just listen to us talk about taking the gospel to a place that it's not fully known. And pray about that. If you can't go this time, we're going to go in late April again. The call of the church is the proclamation of the gospel to all nations. And once the testimony gets there, then the end will come. It's not that we are in control of ushering in the second coming. Don't, we're not. God is. But we are called to go and to tell and to take the gospel. All right? Let's pray.